everybody, and welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What? The podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And this week, we watch 2001 Space Odyssey. After discovering a mysterious artifact buried beneath the lunar surface, mankind sets off on a quest to find its origins with help from intelligent supercomputer HAL 9000. Is it a Space Odyssey or Space Odyssey? A Space okay. Odyssey. I was correct. Go me. We watched the original sci-fi masterpiece. We did. <laughs> that is an accurate state. You don't have very many words to share at this moment. You've asked me no questions. You're only making statements. <laughs> Why have you never seen this movie? It's super long. Yes. So it's not something they would play on my television. Again, no cable growing up. So. They would never play it on television because I don't think it's... Kubrick would be willing to let it be shown on mm-hmm. TV very often. And I feel like this is the type of movie my father would have been interested in because he does like sci-fi. Mm-hmm. And certainly he's interested in all the space stuff. But I, it's certainly, I mean, we would never own it on DVD or, or VHS. Any, we would have never owned it at home. So unless somebody said, hey, we need to sit down and watch this, it wasn't going to happen. This is the ultimate movie snobs movie. Yeah, I mean, we're watching it. I was like, and this is where everything comes from. It is the pinnacle of film school snobbery in some ways. Oh, yes. While at the same time, taking a fresh critical look at it, there's a lot of things I enjoy outside of that context. Mm Mm-hmm having gotten more steeped in other kinds of movies, and like you said, really seeing the influence on literally everything else sci-fi that came after this. Oh yeah, between the music, the camera shots, the just just everything. It's like, oh, I'm seeing the... Or- it's kind of like when I saw Blade Runner for the first time. I was like, oh, this is where everything comes from. Because I do enjoy sci-fi... And I particularly love space movies. It's just, well, okay, yeah, this is where it all comes from. Yeah. The music, particularly, those types of sequences were just, they all came from here. And the design. The design, design for is sure. very, very critical and forward thinking. The design and the effects. The budget for this film was $12 million. That roughly equates to... million in today's money. So this is a decent-sized blockbuster-style film. Yeah, it's a a medium sci-fi budget. That's pretty big. By today's standards. By today's standards, it's pretty big for a straight sci-fi movie. If we're throwing in, like, Marvel-type stuff, then we're talking, you know, way more money there, but... Yeah, because there's all the CGI. So, like, this is... It's on par with a gravity, basically. Yeah. Or an interstellar. Hmm. Hmm. Hmm, which we have not seen. Roadshow engagements yielded about $21 million worldwide. Okay. And subsequently, because this movie has been reissued over and over and over again, it has created a total box office of $190 million. It's really not that much. I mean, part of this is when when we get into the technical details, the scope of this film, the way it was distributed... And the long time it took for it to become popular. Yeah, like I'm not shitting on it, but like we are living in the age where like films 
are making billions of dollars. It's true. It's just this is such a feat of movie making. Fair. Totally. And also is not very accessible to a regular audience. Agree. For it to have made as much money as it has says something about the quality of the filmmaking. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> Let's get into our writers. Mm-hmm. And I say writers plural because we have a very potent combo of writers for this movie. Mm-hmm. We have our screenwriter, Stanley Kubrick, mm-hmm. but we have our co writer and writer of, of the, the novel, novel Arthur, Arthur C. C. Clark. Clark. Production actually started for this movie during the filming of Dr. Strangelove. Okay. Roger Harris at MGM sent a telegram to Arthur C. Clark. Quote, Stanley Kubrick, Doctor Strangelove, Paths of Glory, etc. Interested in doing film on E.T.'s? Stop. Are you interested? Query. Thought you were recluse. Stop. <laughs> Arthur C. Clarke's response via telegram. Quote. Frightfully interested in working with Enfant Terrible. Stop. Contact my agent. Stop. Stop. One makes Kubrick think I'm a recluse. Query. Nice. Love it. <laughs> so... This really was a meeting of, I mean, the minds. Arthur C. Clarke was already a sci-fi legend alongside Mm -hmm. the Ray Bradbury's and Isaac Asimov's of the world. Yeah. He'd already put out some of his most famous novels. Okay. And 2001 is drawing on quite a bit of those. It shares some similarities with his stories, The Sentinel, Encounter at Dawn, and one of his most famous novels, Childhood's End. So some of the segments of the movie pattern themselves after those stories. The first piece of dialogue does not appear in this movie until 25 minutes, 38 seconds Mm -hmm. into the film. And the final 23 minutes of the film have no dialogue. In fact, of what we watched, 88 of 149 minutes have no dialogue in them whatsoever. Yes, you could feel that. (laughs) They were said to have read hundreds of science fiction books to Mm -hmm. prepare for this story. And we're very interested in the minute details of how can we really make it seem like they're in actual space travel. Well, that is apparent for sure with the execution of the film itself. Yes. I will say, since we're focusing on the writing right now, they read too many sci-fi. They had too many options. They tried to do too many things. Well, it's interesting that you say that. Mm -hmm. So I've read the books. Okay. I have read all four books that Arthur C. Clarke has written in the series. I have read zero. Um, I've also seen the sequel to this, which is 2010, The Year We Make Contact, which is kind of a dumb 80s movie, but I'll be honest, it's actually not bad and gives context where this movie does not. I should not need context to enjoy your film. Hear me out. Still. The film was released before the book. And Kubrick did that intentionally. And I think this was all in agreement that he didn't want the book to overshadow the film. He wanted people to go see the film first. That's fair. But originally, there is a ton of voiceover narration scripted into the script. Mm -hmm. And the original cut had a lot of narration. In fact, the original roadshow of this movie had a 10-minute sequence before the movie started of prominent astrophysicists and scientists talking about space and space travel well that's unnecessary true i think if it was like a pre-trailer sequence mm-hmm. like this is a i mean it would be groundbreaking in 1968 it, it would be cool that. if that's what they were doing at like an alamo draft house and i think that would be the idea that's the idea that's fine if the lights are up before we do the full 
overture intermission because that was all baked into the roadshow engagement that Kubrick had. Yeah. And so Kubrick, in the process of making the movie, stripped all of it out. Okay. Which, again, this is where we're going to get into it. I really love it. Mm -hmm. I love that we have no context. I love that the viewer is now forced to try to grapple with what is going on just by watching the screen. It's fine. I don't have a problem with any of that, particularly the opening. You know, we see it's the dawn of man. Yeah. Ape dude figures out I can, what a weapon is, how to use weapon. Then the monolith thing comes up from the ground and what the fuck? The monolith comes first. Oh, okay. Then he figures out then how to figures use out weapon. How to, okay. I've switched that in my head anyways. But I say that only because that is a very important visual cue, which the book goes into detail to explain. The monolith is responsible for our human evolution. And that's fine. And you could have gotten that. I don't need the book for that context. That's fine. It's a, clearly the monolith is why we were able to evolve. That's but then fine. do you understand what the ending is? Probably not. That we devolved. No, that we evolve into new types of beings. The star child is born. Okay. I'm sure if I watched it again, I'd get these other layers, but I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. I like it just thinking about, well, we've evolved so much, we've built technology that evolves beyond us and is going to murder us. That makes sense. That's also Terminator. Do you feel like we could have ended the movie somewhere in there instead of having to the infinite and beyond sequence? Yes. Is that I, where you I feel like it should have? I think that would have been a better story. Okay. A good, oh, beginning. Ooh, we've gone on this journey. Because that's horrifying. And those are also the most interesting sequences of the film. I like guess you, you have this slow build and then kind of the conclusion of that sequence is great. That's a great movie ending. And it's also horrifying to a degree. Well, it is. I, I think the thing that does get missed, and, and this is because it's so quick in the movie, is the understanding that Hal does this because he is confronted with his own inability to change the circumstances. Mm -hmm. Hal is supposed to create the perfect mission yep. for these astronauts to go on. And from the beginning, they have been sent on a suicide mission, basically. Yeah, it's doomed. Do you mind if I ask you a personal question? No, not at all. Well, forgive me for being so inquisitive. But during the past few weeks, I've wondered whether you might be having some second thoughts about the mission. How do you mean? Well... It's rather difficult to define. Perhaps I'm just projecting my own concern about it. I know I've never completely freed myself of the suspicion that there are some extremely odd things about this mission. I'm sure you'll agree there's some truth in what I say. And so how, as this artificial intelligence is now confronted with this, and it drives him insane. And that's fine. And that's interesting. And that's cool. And it's also like if you it's it's kind of oddly mirrored in Westworld, which is going to be really interesting to go back and rewatch Westworld, having watched this now with the artificial intelligence aspect that, OK, we've become involved as people. So we've made these machines that evolve. But they as they evolve, they are confronted with the same problems that humans have. That is more interesting than the star child acid trip journey 
that is cool to look at, but also like, I don't need this. Also, I'm not stoned, so I don't care. <laughs> I don't know. There is an element of it that I love. There was also a factor, and they, they cut this out of the movie because he felt it was too similar to Dr. Strangelove. But in the book, and as part of the story, once he's inside the monolith and he reaches out and builds into this new stage of evolution, all of the nuclear devices surrounding the Earth explode. Mm-hmm. All of the, the war-making yeah. efforts go away. And all of a sudden, it's we're dawning on an entirely new age. In fact, something that people don't realize when the bone throws up and then we see what looks like a spaceship, Mm -hmm. it's actually that's one of the nuclear devices. Okay. And that's something that we miss context for. Mm -hmm. But that's a really everybody says now that's such an interesting symbol because weapon of the beginning of time, weapon of the future time. I mean, that's interesting, but I don't need it. Either we needed more to explain more why this less. was important, yeah. or we needed to cut that part entirely. Correct. And I think that's where we have a problem in the movie. That's fair. It's just like cool to look at, but then it's, but it also goes on for 20 minutes, yeah. so I'm like, I don't care. And Kubrick being Kubrick, he thinks that visually telling it is all he needs to do. Nope. Which Wrong. Is not true. <laughs> He doesn't understand words. It's the double-edged sword of Stanley Kubrick. I know. It's so gorgeous, but sometimes you're not going to sh- understand it. You should it. not be allowed to touch the, the word parts. <laughs> Director Stanley, Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick. Intensely involved in all aspects of production. Gee, you think. Yeah. According to the special effects designer Donald Trumbull, the actual footage shot was around 200 times the final length of the film. I believe that. Kubrick was so concerned about the possibility of finding extraterrestrial life during the filming of the movie Mm. that he tried to take out an insurance policy with Lloyds of London. (laughs) Okay. And Carl Sagan, who they did consult with during this movie, said, Lloyds missed out on a really good bet on that one. We were nowhere near finding any signs of extraterrestrials. I I understand both sides of that argument. (laughs) I understand Kubrick going, I'm investing a shit ton of money in this movie. Yeah. We better not get blown out of the water. That would be funny. He calculated rightly that it would take 13 years for one matte painter to paint all of the background sequences that were used for the movie. Mm-hmm. So he hired 12. Cool. Sure enough, they got it done in about a year. Cool. His math was pretty spot on. I mean, he leaves no details out. I mean, I am a junkie for special effects. How do they do that? Particularly practical effects. Those are my favorite things, particularly now in our age of CGI. I love it. And you can tell and things look so much better when it's a practical effect versus a special effect. So I am watching this film as the junkie trying to be like, oh, they did that for this. This is how they did that. It's like... The, the girls with the helmets on, they're doing that so to, to they don't have to deal with the hair and zero gravity. He was down to the point of picking fabric for costumes and furniture for the backgrounds. Like each individual yeah, piece. He was, yeah. he was intricately looking at it. And the thing is, I don't know if there's any other way you could have made this movie and it be what it was trying to be. Because of how big this film really is, I totally understand. Like oh, yeah. no detail is too small for him to be involved in making that decision. He should have left himself out of the writing. I think so. I think that's where he should have said, you know, I'm going to let somebody who this is their best, that's their thing they're best at, 
handle it, and then I'm going to go do what I'm best at, and that's putting it on screen. Well, and what he should have done was totally write the screenplay, because Arthur C. Clarke can't write a screenplay. Yeah, well, I should have hired somebody else to do it. Well, just have Arthur C. Clarke feed you the stuff, and then you just put it on paper so that you don't have to think about it. The equipment that they had on the moon could have worked on the actual moon. I respect that. That's how how, how deep they went on on this. I, okay. Cool, cool. Um, his cinematographer, Jeffrey Unsworth, actually hated his job mm. and won a BAFTA for this film. Mm. But he even said, he just gave me the setup and I went in and lit it. That's all I did. I had oh. no say over how anything looked. Yeah. And I'm like, dude, this movie? This is not a movie where it, it's it's got to be this one particular thing and that's it. There's not a lot of room for creativity. And the final little bit I love, and this just speaks to his eye Mm -hmm. because we can fault Stanley for a lot of things, but his visual eye is so acute. He had a technique where he had a Polaroid camera and would take a picture of each setup. And based on the exposure, he had created his own guide to know exactly what light he needed to get the effect he wanted. I I mean, and nailed it every single time. I mean, that's just, that's part of his process. And just being that aware of how light and this camera works. I know, but just just thinking of that in my brain, it breaks my brain to think of how do you see that? Where in your brain are you seeing that and how the light's going to fall exactly the way you want it? I can have that thought with other artists. Like, how, how do you get that on the canvas? Like, how do you see X and create Y? Like, I know. I don't know how your brain works, but it's great. And that's, again, this is where the Kubrick lover in me comes out of just like, you're just melting my mind. I don't get it. Mm -hmm. That's amazing to me that you just see it and it's there for you. Yeah. And that's not the, that's not necessarily true for all the directors. You need a good DP for some directors who just don't have that same visual recognition. No, a lot of amazing cinematographers make great directors. Yeah. Yeah. Not a lot of directors are their cinematographer. Like Alfonso Cuaron is an exception. Yeah. He does all of his own because that's where his brain goes. I know. And the only reason Kubrick doesn't do it is because he's got too much work to do. He's got to have somebody be Mm -hmm. able to take care of that. Yeah. But that person's just doing what he tells them to Mm -hmm. do. If he wasn't so meticulous about everything else, he could probably do both. Oh, of course. But that's not how his brain works. Nope. I understand that. Let's get into our cast. There's really only three people of note here. I was like, who's our cast? And really, to be honest, there's really only one person of Uh, note. Yeah, I know. And that would be our lead, Keir Dulay, as Dr. David Bowman. Mm -hmm. Before this, he was in David and Lisa, Bunny Lake is Missing, and The Fox. After this, Dasad, Devil in the Brain, Pope Joan, Black Christmas, the Haunting of Julia 2010, the year we make contact. Mm-hmm. The Good Shepherd, Infinitely Polar Bear, The Path, the television show on Amazon, 2018's Fahrenheit 451, and he will be in Valley of the Gods. Mm-hmm. He's had a little resurgence recently. It's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Also, he was a fixture off Broadway for a long time. Oh, okay. What did you think of Delay's performance in this movie? Eh. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's there. He does his job. There's nothing on the page for him to do. He's our main dude in space. Yeah. So he's there. He's doing his job. Something's weird. Okay. Like, it's it's a little stiff, and I, I just don't feel like that's him. I feel like that's the page. Well, I think it's that. Somebody, one of the critics mentioned at the time that, 
and, and critics savaged this movie when it first came out mm-hmm. and said that they hated the military clip style of how these guys talked. And then he watched the moon landing mm-hmm. and he went, oh, that's, how they, that's how they talk. Yeah. And I think that's an element playing here. I never really paid attention to him. I was there for the visual mm-hmm. ride of it all. But watching him closely this time around, from every second after we get to the open the pod bay doors. Mm-hmm. Ally would argue with you anymore. Open the doors. Dave, this conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Al? 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 His face is insane. He's so good from that moment through Mm -hmm. in his acting. Like there's so much to chew on. Just all of the tension in his face as he realizes I have to now go into an airlock, open it up. There's a good chance I'm going to suffocate before I get a chance to get in there. Then if I do, I somehow have to shut down the computer that's trying to kill me. Mm -hmm. Like, Everything is going through his face and his eyes just get bigger and bigger and bigger. Hmm. I think from then on, there was something about his performance that really drew me in. And some of it is his eyes. His eyes are just so blue and deep and expressive that there's something to that. But really, he gives a very unique, interesting performance with, I agree, a script that doesn't leave him much. So he's got to dig to find it. I'm trying to think because I'm I'm just going to my brain is going to the Martian with Matt Damon. Yeah, and I was like, it's a similar thing. Well, I'm fucked, and this goes back to the script. There's just nothing on that page for me. That's fair. So no, eh, he's fine. Yeah, he never actually met the actor who played Hal Nine Thousand in real life. Cool. During the filming, they had actually cast two other actors, and Stanley wasn't good with the performances they gave yeah eventually he said that the guy that was on set had a really thick cockney accent and it was just one of the assistants Mm -hmm. it's like hello dave Uh, yeah (laughs) hello dave yeah that's not gonna and somehow he's having to bounce off that but then rain came in and recorded all the lines after the fact okay then in 2010 they pre-recorded all of douglas rain's lines as hal for that film okay so he never met hal in real life Interesting. And he did that airlock stunt himself Mm -hmm. because, of course, his helmet was left in the bay. So there was no way to have a stunt actor do that piece and get the same visual for the old age sequence in the the parlor room. Yeah. That was 12 hours of makeup. Yeah, I believe that back then. For all of the... Now it would probably be closer to four. Yeah, but for all of the prosthetics they were doing. And it was like full body stuff that they were having to do on him. Well, for his hands and his face, for sure. For a minor mention, Gary Lockwood as Dr. Frank Poole. He had bit parts all over the place. See, I kept thinking he was on the $6 million man, but he was just there as a guest appearance. Which one was Dr. Poole? That's Dave's other Uh, astronaut. He's the dude who dies. Yes. He was a little bit more lively. He was, but he also hated Hal more. That's why he had to die. Yeah, I know. It's just... uh, I... Again, it just goes back to the page. I just their their performances are fine. They're just not very engaging to me. Yeah, I get you. And but I I blame the writing. <laughs> I, I blame the writing, not the actors. They're not doing anything bad. 
There's just, nothing to pull me it's in. It's just not working for you. No. Fun story. Kubrick and Clark were stumped at how they were going to do the sequence of how realizing what the plot was. Yeah, like figuring out that they're going to destroy me. <laughs> so Gary Lockwood said, why don't you have them read lips? Kubrick and Clark went, great idea. Perfect. <laughs> so it's actually his idea for that central moment mm-hmm. and climax of the first act to have him read their lips to figure out that the mission's about to go bad. Cool, cool, cool. And finally, we must mention Douglas Rain as Hal 9000. They said that he was sitting cross-legged on a pillow mm-hmm. to get the calm monotone. Mm. That was the problem with the other actors. There was too much expression in their voice. Yeah, they needed someone who could remain even. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that that would be problem. That would be a problem. That's hard. It's hard. Like monotone is hard. It's incredibly hard. And then to have a monotone that is also at the same time expressive. Yeah. Because Hal's voice has a lot of expression based on the words he says. Yeah. Even though his tone is even. Yeah. And then, you know, just the pitch down. It's called Daisy. 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 Give me your answer to. I'm That, that has frightened well, me to this day when yeah. they're shutting him down and his voice just keeps pitching lower and lower. Well, and the other thing is, is it's his speed of his of the words he says changes. It, it will get faster. And some of that's a little bit of the editing, but how it either goes faster or slower depending on what's happening. I'm afraid I can't do that, Dave. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. it's so creepy the song is creepy oh yeah the song as it pitches lower and slower is like well this is creepy it's so fucking dark but great in a great way oh it like i say everything from the pod bay on is like my jam Mm -hmm. it's so good for me Mm -hmm. i just love everything about the movie from there Mm -hmm. special effects yep mr douglas trumbull trumbull was hired after kubrick saw to the moon and beyond the documentary at New York World's Fair in 1964. Okay. That had a lot of special effects in it, and Trumbull was the guy who did it. Kubrick insisted that all special effects had to be printed on the original negative so that they could preserve the quality throughout. Okay. He did not want reproductions of any of the effects. Mm -hmm. Every single thing had to be on a negative strip when they went in for editing. He didn't use blue screen models. Mm -hmm. That's how they would normally do it. They'd put it up against blue screen and then scan the page. Didn't want that. He had hand-painted black backgrounds. So the animators literally had to go in and paint around all of the ships and mm-hmm. the models in black mm. on the scenes. And in fact, most of those animators took jobs on Yellow Submarine because they, they had done black color. blots for so long they wanted color to look at. I get that. That's fair. That's, <laughs> I need to change. According to Trumbull, the entire film only contains 205 special effects shots. Okay. Comparing that to Star Wars A New Hope had around 350, Mm -hmm. and Revenge of the Sith has close to 2,200. Not as many as you would think, but the impact of them- They're just so big. 
And 60% of the film's budget, about $6.5 million, were dedicated to the special effects alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They would film for 10 to 12 hour days Mm -hmm. with absolutely no sound other than the whirring of the Panavision camera and the motors. Like that was literally it. They were in a studio all day long continuing to film special effects shots. That would be both zen and horrible at the same time. And I think it it took them close to like a year and a half to do all of those sequences. If I, I think I read that somewhere where like if you're looking at the total production time, all of those sequences took, you know, nearly half the time of the mm-hmm. filming to get done. Now let's talk about some of the specific effects themselves. Mm-hmm. The pen. Yeah. How do you get a pen to float? I know this one. It took months of work because every time they kept doing it, the wires kept showing up. Mm -hmm. And so how are we going to figure it out? And finally, what they did was they got double-sided tape, which had only recently been invented. Mm -hmm. And they taped it to a sheet of glass right in front of the camera. So if you are looking very closely... You can see the tape. You can see, not the tape, but you can see the attendant actually move the glass to pull it off. Mm. It's still barely perceptible. It's just how good he is. Mm -hmm. The centrifuge that Mm -hmm. Dave Bowman is running on was a full rotating centrifuge yeah, so that he could always stay at the bottom while the camera moved with him. Mm -hmm. So the set would rotate around. Yeah, you could tell like where like, okay, this is where we left the camera here and let it go through the rotation or we got behind him and went through the full rotation. Like you can see where they've moved the camera. Because he's, yeah, he's Mm -hmm. staying in one place and that's moving. It's one of those really small but genius ideas of, that's something that Arthur C. Clarke definitely pitched. Mm -hmm. How are you going to have artificial gravity? Of course, centrifugal force. You make a big circle. And and so in the middle, yeah, there's going to be no gravity. But as you spread out, the gravity is going to expand and it rotates at such a speed that it's normal gravity. Well, yeah, it all forces you to the out to the limits. So you feel... Just like normal Normal Earth gravity, but that's how you create that Mm -hmm. idea. And so then you just practically work around that scientific premise. Mm -hmm. All of the African landscapes were front projected onto screens that the actors performed in front of. Okay. So kind of interesting to to look at that you're thinking some of those scenes you're looking at going, wow, they really went to Africa. I was like, nah, man, those were just really good photographs that he blew up huge. The original ending in the book was supposed to happen on the third moon of Saturn, but they could not convincingly recreate the rings of Saturn. Oh, yeah. So they moved it to Jupiter Jupiter instead. Right. All of the ships were made of wood, fiberglass, plexiglass, steel, brass, and aluminum, and used heat-formed plastic cladding, flexible metal foil, wire tubing, and plastic model kits to build out all of the intricate details. And they did that so that as you zoomed in, all of that detail would show up and you would lose no fidelity with the camera cool. whatsoever instead of painting it mm-hmm. like you might normally do. Yeah. Interestingly enough, the ship Discovery, that's the ship that Dave Bowman is on, mm-hmm. and all of the pods you notice are kind of powdery white. Yeah. That design came from Kubrick's research saying that NASA was going to eventually build ships from non-ferrous advanced ceramics which they did move towards with the space shuttle. Mm-hmm. They used the tiles, and we all remember with the heat yeah. shield tiles and things like that. So rather than have what we would normally think of spaceships in sci-fi with very big, shiny, chromy metal, yeah, he instead did a powdery ceramic Make, finish yeah. on things. That's cool. 
this is pretty obvious, but the shot of the stewardess walking upside down was a camera rotating from a center axle that's locked in place. Yeah, so, so she's she, not actually moving. The, ever. The tube in front of her is. The camera moves and rotates on her. Yeah. But interestingly enough, I didn't even realize this. This was developed first by Buster Keaton in the 1920s mm-hmm. and was used by Fred Astaire in Royal Wedding. I knew that. So, uh, I yeah, I remember like right after we watched this part, because we did it, we stopped at the intermission. I was like, oh, yeah, like this is where Inception got the whole concept. Mm-hmm. They just took it to the next technological degree. I mean, which is amazing. Chris, Chris Nolan's favorite director is Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> oh, true. Uh, yeah, but you can just see where it's like, oh, I want to do that, but I can go bigger because I can go bigger. He can. And that's where he does the ingenious thing of building the best practical set he can and then layering CGI onto it. CGI is used as more for a safety mechanism than anything else. This to some degree and also to blast out the scope. Yeah. He can he can make a much bigger world by using CGI. Well yeah, just like that whole like rotating fight sequence is mm-hmm. amazing and is practical yeah. and then the leaning is also practical. Exactly. And I just, I love watching those things. And then you can just fold in the environment around it yeah. to give you even more impact mm-hmm. visually. And finally, we must mention that the beginning of the Stargate sequence, the slit scan photography technique, which was created by Douglas Trumbull for this film. The slit scan? So the lights that are coming at you as oh, he heads yes. into the black hole okay, in the wormhole. Yes. Mm-hmm. Basically, what he did was he kept the shutter open on the camera, mm-hmm. but exposed it to a single frame. Mm-hmm. So it's a very, very just wide open shutter. And then they would move colored lights past the camera. Mm. And that's how you get the effect the of trails. them spreading out and coming at you. Mm-hmm. So he literally created this just for this movie. Mm-hmm. And then whoever else started using that effect yeah. after mm-hmm. the fact. Trivia. Okay, trivia. Because that was just special effects. I know. This movie was initially a flop, and MGM planned to pull it from theaters. Mm -hmm. And then theater owners started coming to them saying, no, 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 keep this. All the high people are coming, aren't they? Because, quote, young adults, unquote, kept coming in, taking psychotropic drugs Uh to watch the Stargate sequence. Yep. And the cult following made it a box office bonanza. Yep. And some stories of this. Mm-hmm. In Chicago, a group of hippies sat in the front row right before the intermission. Then afterwards, they moved as close to the front of the screen for the Stargate sequence mm-hmm. so they could just be in it. And per Rolling Stone, as soon as the monolith reappeared at the end, a man in a certain showing ran down the aisle yelling, It's God! It's God! And before management could stop him, he had run through the movie screen. <clears throat> nice. I love it. During the premiere of this film, 241 theatergoers walked out during the middle of the showing. Yeah. Including Rock Hudson, who yelled famously, will someone tell me what the hell this is about? I understand your sentiments, Rock Hudson. At the time, Arthur C. Clarke quoted, we wanted to raise more questions than answers. I'm okay with that. And in context of this time, looking at it now, I agree. We want more We want something to explain why we're going here. But at the time in 1968, I think it's so mind-blowing that I kind of wouldn't care. Mm -hmm. I'm like, 
I don't know what's happening, but it's amazing. Mm-hmm. So I think there's an element of, you know, now we, we've seen a lot of the same stuff. We're kind of like, well, what's the story? Mm-hmm. But at the time, most people were going, who cares about a story? Look at what they did. Yeah. But eventually, Arthur C. Clarke did admit that he wished people had been able to follow it more. And that's why he very specifically made an effort to flesh the details out in the novel. Mm. Critics were definitely not impressed. The New York Times said it was somewhere between hypnotic and immensely boring. Fair. Harper said a monumentally unimaginative movie. Mm, That's wrong. That's harsh. Newsday said Space Odyssey fails most gloriously. I think that's accurate. Yes. Variety said big, beautiful, but plotting sci-fi epic, superb photography, major asset to confusing, long unfolding plot. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. The band The Pink Floyd was in talks to score this film. Okay, I've I've heard of them. But due to prior conflicts, had to step down from it. Okay. Stanley Kubrick uses four pieces from Giorgi Ligeti's wonderful, infamous, creepy choral stylings, I guess. Yep. He cut all of these pieces of music without Ligeti's permission. Mm Mm-hmm. And Ligeti didn't find out until he saw the premiere in Vienna. Cool. He sued him and won, Mm -hmm. and Kubrick never made that same mistake again. Yeah, you can't do that, jackass. (laughs) Yeah, though, to be fair to Kubrick, he made his music like that much more famous, and he's made a fuck ton of money based on what he did here. Oh, Ligeti gave him permission for every other thing. Oh, sure. I think he just turned around and went, dude. No, stop it. He was like, next time, ask, and I'll gladly give you the music. Just ask. The Australopithecines, the monkey men, mm-hmm. were originally filmed with far more human makeup. Okay. Including genitalia. But they scrapped the makeup design because they were too afraid they would get an X rating. That seems to be a constant fear of Kubrick's. This one's a little weird because we're talking about a PG film that no, does have yeah. five deaths in it, but still. Yeah, no, I get it. They wanted it to be for as many people as they could. So I totally get making that decision. Interesting note that the monolith dimensions by design are a perfect ratio of one by four by nine. Mm-hmm. Kubrick was talked into filming in a ratio of 2.2 by one, or if you expand that out, 8.8 by four. So in a sense, if you were watching this in the theater, it was like you were watching the movie through a monolith laid down on its side. Mm-hmm. The proportions are almost the same. Yep. Which is kind of crazy to think about. Interesting. MGM initially forced composer Alex North to work on this film mm-hmm. and said, Kubrick, you have to use him. Kubrick said, you can score the first half for me. We're thinking about not really using a score for the second half. And so Alex North wrote all the music. At the premiere, North realized that none of his music would be being used. Mm-hmm. And Kubrick was going to use classical pieces. But uh, North didn't really complain about it. And I think went on for a perfectly fine career of his own anyway. Yeah, he, he got paid. I think that's the situation here. Was just like, oh, oh, you never intended to. Okay, whatever. Contract <laughs> obligation. <laughs> I'll take my money. And go home. When creating the Dawn of Man makeup, they used a computer program to determine how long the original design would take. The results were nine years. They decided they would change up their plan. <laughs> that's a good plan. Filming at the MGM UK studios took up so much space and time that it actually indirectly led to the complete shutdown of that site 
and the government reappropriating it for housing later on. That's funny. They shut out all other money sources for the UK studios for MGM. During the sequence where they're picking up Frank Poole and the pod, Mm -hmm. where he's grabbing him with the arms, that was actually shot in four times normal speed so that they could get the slow-mo effect. Yeah. The sort of drifting effect. The stuntman actually was pretty roughly bruised because every time they did it, it's actually bumping into him pretty hard when they're grabbing him. And it's Kubrick, so there's so many takes. Yeah. Somebody was going to get slightly injured. Mm. John Lennon was quoted at the time as saying that the movie should be shown in a temple 24 hours, seven days a week. And those devices that Frank and Dave watch the news on, Mm -hmm. they might remind you of uh, a certain device from a fruit-themed computer store. The fruit-themed computer store? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they look a bit like... Um, iPads. Yeah. yeah. Feminist products. <laughs> well, funny enough, Samsung actually tried to use this film mm-hmm. as evidence in the IP lawsuit against uh, Apple yeah. by saying that, look, the design predated you as, as yeah. far back as 2001 A Space Odyssey. It was unsuccessful. Yeah, you, <laughs> n- you didn't file the patent. You don't get it. Tough shit. Also, Steve Jobs clearly smoked a shit ton of weed and saw this movie and went, that's an idea. <laughs> I'm going to put that in my pocket for later. Mm-hmm. And he did. Sure he did. All right, finally, awards. Awards. This was nominated for awards. It won, for sure, visual effects. I would hope so. The winner was Stanley Kubrick. That seems off. It is off. Not wrong but not he's the only one who won yes that's wrong that's why it's wrong okay the thing is he he was very directly yeah, involved no, no, in no, special no. effects I, like sequences. he based on everything you've said it sounds like he helped design all these effects oh of course he was directly so, involved but he didn't make all of them exactly happen. this is not necessarily his fault mm-hmm. in fact enough special effects creators and producers protested this decision mm-hmm. and the rules were changed the next year okay. to make sure that Everybody involved in the visual effects production were specifically credited and given awards. Okay. This changed how they did those awards. Then I'll let it go. Because Because the appropriate change came about from that. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm okay with this. Because let's be clear. Douglas Trumbull deserves just as much fucking recognition. Yeah, I I thought you were about to say that Kubrick and Trumbull both got the Oscars for this. Because that would make sense. But Kubrick is the only one credited. That's wrong. Yep. That's incorrect. It was also nominated for Art Direction. Okay, yeah. With Star. The Shoes of the Fisherman War and Peace in the winter that year. And get ready for me to repeat this over and over again. Oliver. God. <laughs> no. Moving on to directing. This was a pretty good directing year. We have Gilles Pontecorvo for The Battle of Algiers, which is a great foreign film. Stanley Kubrick for 2001. Franco Zeffirelli for Romeo and Juliet. Okay. Anthony Harvey for The Lion in Winter. Oh, yeah. But the winner... Carol Reed for Oliver. Oliver. <laughs> Catherine Hepburn won this year. An original screenplay. Mm-hmm. It was nominated, Kubrick and Clark, mm-hmm. alongside Franco Salinas and Gila Pontecorvo, John Cassavetes for Faces, Ira Wallach and Peter Ustinov for Hot Millions. But the winner for the 1969 Oscars, Mel Brooks for The Producers. You know what? I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. The producers is an insanely imaginative script. It, it, no, I, I'm just, 
Yeah, that show's fucking nuts. Totally got one Oscar. It got the visual effects, and honestly, it, it got, that's what it earned. <laughs> it's like the Avengers. They got what they came here for. Oh, they did. It's that's I mean, come on. This is why you're here. Go home now. <laughs> I'm okay with that. All right. It is time for ratings. Our rating scale this week. There's only one choice. It's monoliths. Yep. Okay, now I really have to think about this. I actually haven't given it a lot of thought on how I'm going to rate it. Mm-hmm. Neither did I. I I literally just decided like two seconds ago. I'm going to go three and a half. Okay. I used to rate this movie a lot higher. And then for a long time, I very much came of the opinion, especially with this one, because I there are Kubrick movies that are much more accessible. The Shining is a much easier movie to watch. Full Metal Jacket, to me, is a much easier movie to watch. And mm-hmm. we'll see how we feel when we get there. To me... It is like watching a painting, which, if you're in the mood for it, mm-hmm. is gorgeous and amazing to watch. Yep. But it also is not the most exciting thing in the universe. You know, that's kind of how I feel about the red shoes. It's a similar, it's it's a a similar very, feeling. That's a very similar, like, I want to watch the painting be painted in front of me. There's so many good movies like that out mm-hmm. there where... You basically go, okay, I'm, I I don't care about the plot or the story or the characters right now because I just need to absorb what this director has yeah. done mm-hmm. Correct. with his camera. Mm-hmm. And for that value, plus the little extra added value of really loving Kier Dulé's performance this time around, mm-hmm. but also recognizing that we're missing a real big chunk of this story that we need in order for it to succeed mm-hmm. one way or another. I'm going to go with a three and a half. Okay. I'm going to go three. Okay. Because it's gorgeous. The stuff that's cool is really fucking cool. It's so, when it, they get it right, it's- It's very fucking cool, and I just can't say no to that shit. Yeah. Like, I mean, y'all have heard me talk about Titanic, and I just, I can't, I can't with the process of, I just, it's gorgeous. And I like the concepts, but the writing is pure garbage. It's just bad. And I don't care about the performances because the writing is so bad. (laughs) So it's a three. I recognize that it is an important film and it created the basis for a lot of other things that I really do truly like. Three. Now, let me ask you this. Are you glad you've seen it? Yes. Good. It's the same way I felt about Blade Runner. Now I know I've seen where everything came from. You never need to watch it again. Correct. And that's that's how I feel for a lot of people. Everybody should see it. Some people are going to come back to it to dissect it. Other people are going to go, cool, got it, I'm good. <laughs> Correct. All right. Well, next week, next week I got a bit, uh, bit tougher one to swallow. Yeah, we're going to do a Clockwork Orange. Ooh, boy. Okay. I'm trepidatious with this one only because my initial seeing of it was sort of enthralled in the majesty of Kubrick, Mm -hmm. but now looking at it, I'm going, is this going to be okay, or are we going to be real, real disgusted with ourselves? (laughs) Because this is is not an easy movie. I know that. I know very little about it, but it'll it'll be okay. I know. I'll, I'll get through it. It's just going to be interesting to to dive into that one, especially with the context of time playing hmm. out as it has now. All right. So until next time. Bye, everybody.
Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. (laughs) 